In the first thousand years after Christ, the visible church apostatized. How did that happen? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. Through a series of events, the early church changed and became what we know as the Roman Catholic Church, which has basically replaced Christ as the head with man being the head of the church, and has left the word of God and made it the opinions of men. And this didn't happen overnight. This happened over with a series of events that caused it. And a lot of those events are starting to replay now, and they're starting to happen now. So we were going to spend this podcast going over three of these events that were very significant in the how the church changed from being a church that was worshiping Jesus Christ into a church that was appealing to men. And those three things are, are the broadening of the church at the time of Constantine, the Pope Gregory I becoming the first pope and saying that he had primacy over the church, and then the last one is the adoption of images in Nicaea II, the, the synod that basically said images should replace the word of God and the means of instruction. And so let's start with Constantine. How did Constantine affect the church? I mean, before we talk about how Constantine affected the church, we probably need to talk about who Constantine was because it's some, someone that, you know, isn't a topic of everyday conversation, you know, a Roman emperor from almost 2,000 years ago. You know, at the time of Christ, the Roman Empire is the dominant country or dominant power in your, uh, Europe and the Mediterranean and over Israel. And that continues for many, many years. And so Constantine is a Roman emperor who gets power because it, you know, when he is ascending to become an emperor, uh, the power is divided between a few different emperors and multiple emperors. And he, um, comes to the throne. He, um, become, ends up getting rid of the other emperors and becoming solo emperor. And uh, pretty pertinently for this conversation, he is, uh, you know, at, at, in the history books, he's the first Christian emperor and makes takes Rome from a pagan empire to a Christian one. So it's important to recognize when Christ comes, what happens in Rome. When you hear Paul write to the church in Rome, the church in Rome until Constantine is basically made up, made up of three groups of people, the poor, the very poor, the women, because they had no power, and slaves. It was basically the outcasts of society, the people that, that didn't have any societal position is where the gospel reached. And so, but what happens over time is that the women teach their children, and the slaves are also frequently instruct instructors of the children. And so over time, what you see is it keeps broadening and broadening. Because at first it starts really to the group that is that is suffering the most. That's the one that has the most appeal. The guy who's rich, it doesn't have the same appeal to the guy who's who's starving. And so by the time Constantine comes along, there's a large percentage that's part of the the Christian, you know, professing Christians, but the society is still persecuting them. It's still trying to to swel squelch it and destroy it. And then Constantine comes along and basically gets behind that movement. And that's one of the ways that he, he gets power is that he goes, I'm a Christian and I'll stop, you know, I'll stop abusing and persecuting the Christians. And, and it was coming off of a time of more intense persecution because the persecution kind of went in 
in different ways. And there were some emperors who were more tolerant to Christianity, but then, you know, the, in the years immediately preceding him was a time of more intense persecution. And so he reverses that quite dramatically. And there were people, emperors afterwards, but it's still considered the, the turning point where Christianity basically becomes legal with Constantine. And, and part of even when you read about Constantine, you know, the, the person who was a contemporary of Eusebius of Caesarea, he, he writes about the story that people hear about now frequently, and there's more details added, but this is the person who was the most contemporary of him that I could find. And so Eusebius of Caesarea writes, about the time of the midday sun, when the day was just turning, he said he saw with his own eyes up in the sky and resting over the sun, a cross-shaped trophy formed from light and a text attached to it, which said, by this conqueror. Amazement at the spectacle seized both him and the whole company of soldiers, which was then accompanying him on a campaign he was conducting somewhere and witnessed the miracle. So even at the time, Constantine wasn't saying, here's where it happened. And so if it was this great miracle, you'd think at least he would remember who the soldiers were that were with him, where it took place, you know, some of these basic details. But if you look at it as he's making a political maneuver, it makes a lot of sense. He doesn't really need to remember where it was. He's just saying, you know, I had this conversion experience, so so the Christians joined me in my political endeavors. Right, which, I mean, to be fair, I mean, Eusebius was, I think he was a bishop. He was So a he was a church historian who was who didn't, perhaps, you know, arguably didn't care about the campaign. Um, and, there, and it's not, and this isn't the era where you have, you know, we don't have Constantine's journal or, all, right. there's, you know, there's limited sources, so... You know, the fact that he didn't record it didn't necess- doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't common knowledge at the time and he just didn't write it down because he didn't care. But I think there is a part of it where, I mean, when we think back on things historically, we forget that politics has been a part. I mean, we think of the emperors and, and the emperors in the Roman Empire were viewed as gods in ways. They need people. They need political influence. They need political power. And you can really look at this in the history of the church as the church is the church is being offered something from the world because the world needs them and it's really interesting when you look at it because the church is sort of being offered it's kind of like beyond just being offered a bribe you know what i mean the church you know constantine needs the church and the church has been persecuted and he comes and he looks at them and he's like i'm going to get behind you and the church should it's like it's like satan taking jesus up on the you know up on the temple or taking him up and saying i'll give you all these things that's kind of what really goes on here with the church. And the church doesn't have the resolve at the time to say, to deal with, to refuse him. And I mean, and we need to be careful about that even because some of these things percolate through the church over time, right? Sure. Because Constantine was an Arian. He believed that a man, that Jesus Christ was born a man and he became a god. And so he, being a Roman emperor, believed that he was born a man and he would become a god. Right. Just like Jesus. I mean, that was Constantine's view of the gospel. And so there was the whole Arian controversy where the church comes and goes, no, that is not how it works. Right. Christ was fully God. He did not become a God, which was very much against Constantine. So they're going along with Constantine, but at the same time, they're still willing to stand up to him. They're not just submitting to him. And I mean, Constantine, you know, he's an interesting uh, guy because you can look at his life and you could look at it in a way where you say that he's going through kind of progressive sanctification because he becomes emperor. Rome is still, you know, officially pagan. And he is saying, I had this 
you know, I saw the cross in the sky, and then he has all his men put uh, the Christian symbol on their shields, and then he's saying, God gives me, or I became, you know, the one emperor because God gave me, the Christian God gave me victory. Uh, but then he still will do things like um, he, like the Roman emperor had certain uh, duties as I think like high priest or something in, in the pagan cult religions. Um, and so, and he would still fulfill some of those, but then through his life, he did less and less of that and uh, made the laws more and more free for Christians and uh, began to restrict paganism. And so, you know, by the end of his life, he wasn't doing the pagan cult religion anymore uh, in his ceremony role. He abolished that. Um, so you could look at it in that way and say, well, look, you know, he starts off, he's kind of mixed, but then he is getting more and more pure. The, the other perspective, you know, the other way of, you know, interpreting the stuff out there is to say he was actually doing it because it was a way to consolidate um, power to him, to, uh, you know, himself. And he was playing, you know, political games as he was doing this, where, you know, even with this Aryan controversy that you were mentioning, um, where the, the council is taking place during his reign, he his uh, in his letters, he's saying what we really need is just to not have disagreements about this and we need to just unify around this. So, you know, bishops get together, figure it out. You know, if there's really bad heretics, I'll even enforce laws against them, but just figure it out and get peace because we don't want division over this. And he doesn't have any concern. He's not evidencing any concern about the actual theology and what the Bible says about God. So, you know, he has some errant influence, but in the end, it seems like he doesn't care that much. He just wants Rome to be, you know, unified in their religion and not, you know, have civil a civil war over Christianity. And I think... You know, the point of talking about Constantine, though, is really to say what the effect was on the church. And the effect that Constantine had on the church was to take a group of outsiders and make them insiders and made them acceptable in the culture. And so all of a sudden where you only had the people who were were under pressure to not be there, all of a sudden there's this natural pressure, especially as Constantine continues to rule, that for the wealthy and the powerful to start to join the church. So the nature of the church changes because instead of being the outsiders, they became the insiders, and everybody went, this is where Constantine is, so this is where the power is. And so the church changed because of that. And that's a really complex scenario to think about. Right. I mean, it's really complex because on the one hand, you want to say, hey, persecution is something that a persecutor ought not be doing. God will right. judge them for it. They need to stop this. And then when it stops, this is cause for thanksgiving and gratitude. But at the same time, while you have persecution, it does, it does force a level of purity on the church. You know, you, you have to be committed if you want to join that group of people that are outsiders. Right. But then at the same time, the gospel has this appeal to anybody. And, and, and I don't mean like it, it's palatable to anybody. I mean, like the message of the gospel is supposed to touch anybody at any point, wherever they are. It does not matter if you are rich or if you're poor, if you're male or you're female, if you're Greek or you're Jew. None of these things are supposed to matter as far as your responsibility to bow the knee to Christ. And so it's just, it's a really complex scenario to think about what's happening in the church when all of a sudden, there's this blessing imposed on them, in a sense, right. of there being no persecution. Whatever the motives of Constantine are, pure or otherwise, all of a sudden this good thing happens, and does the church respond like it ought to in that kind of a scenario? That's, that's hard. And the important thing 
that the church has to respond to to respond properly in that situation is not change standards based on who's joining. And that's what frequently happens is, right, if you want if you want to be accepted by the culture around you, you start to say the things that the culture doesn't find offensive. And so you see a shift in the church. And like I said, the church is still at times, like with the Arianism and, and Arminianism, it wasn't called Arminianism, but, but some of these things that they're arguing about, they're arguing them through them, and they are coming to the right conclusion. But there's a lot of acceptance of varying opinions. There's a lot of what's the real church. There's, there becomes all these divisions and these, this, this mix of understanding of who God is that comes into the church. And, and you know, the church, when you get the 3,000 people in, like Peter did on the day of Pentecost when he preaches and 3,000 come to faith or are baptized, that you really have to fight for your doctrine and fight to hold the doctrine firm. And I think over time you see that the church, the visible church in Rome, morphed because it didn't do that good of a job of doing that. And I mean, I mean, a big part of that is had a lot of more money coming into the church. And, you know, James talks about the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil. And when you suddenly have, you know, the one of the most powerful and rich countries that the world has ever seen now become a Christian country that, you know, you know, quote unquote Christian country, you know, that you suddenly have this big spigot of money coming into the church. And that brings a lot of, you know, power struggles and people who are focused on building their personal power rather than building the kingdom of God, you have, you know, seeking to, 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 to you know, amass money for yourself. And there's all kinds of, you know, inevitable issues that come up when, when, when you have that just that increase of wealth. And so the, the question more is, you know, it says in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, for you see your calling, brethren, but not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. The big danger when you have something happen like with Constantine is it is a blessing that persecution stopped. But all of a sudden, do you think that, I mean, do you start to, to pursue those who are mighty, those who are noble, those who are, are the ones that have power in the society, looking to the society for power? And we should all be very sympathetic of the temptation, right? You've been persecuted for a long time. They've been feeding people to lions. There's real reasons to go. Yeah, we, we want the powerful not to be against us. But at the same time, the church has to be willing to say the things that will anger the powerful. Because in the end, I mean, we should be really sympathetic because in a lot of cases, we've been willing to be sympathetic. We've been willing to do that without the persecution, right? right? We've been willing to, to do that, and there's no one been trying to kill us. And so it's – but at the same time, you do want to look, if you think of the church – as and this is a problem that people often have is picture the church as like a, a child being born and growing up and coming to maturity and the church is dealing you know like there's over time the church is the church is maturing and the church is thinking about things and considering things just like and you can look back in your life and you can see times when you were confronted with opportunity you were given something and it was and there was a great temptation with it and you completely handled it wrongly i mean and and maybe you made it through you know it didn't kill you it didn't destroy you in fact it made you stronger but you learned from it and you understand things from it but you can also look back and see the great harm that it caused and i think as you're that's the context of what we're talking about here because if we're right if and you know that that this was one of the sh things that shaped the formation of the roman catholic church understand what great evil comes out of these things 
understand what incredible evil comes because it's not like this was just some passive thing of, well, they made a mistake, they made some decisions. There was real harm that came from these things, and the church should look back at it and be able to learn from its past mistakes. The church should be able to consider these things and understand where sin takes you. The church should just see it as a real red flag when all the powerful want to be part of it. Because, yes, the gospel, we're, you know, God says he'll save you know, all different classes of people. So we preach the gospel to everybody. But all of a sudden what happened with Constantine is everybody wanted to be part of the church that was powerful. Well, that's, that's not the position the church is supposed to be in. Right, John 15, 18 through 21, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of, this wor- of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And so it's really tempting when all the world goes, oh yeah, we all want to be part of the church. And this caused big problems in American history too. This isn't just like the Roman Catholic Church. But this idea that the only people that could vote were part of the church, well, what are you doing? You're basically saying, we want to get people into the church, whether they're believers or not, whether they trust in Christ or not, that doesn't matter. What we want to do is bring the world into the church. And so we shouldn't look and go, these are exceptions. These are, these are the temptation that's always out there. But we should recognize it's a dangerous temptation that can really harm the church. So I think some people are probably a little upset because – you know, you have the idea of like a post-millennialism or that type of idea where, you know, we should expect to see victory in certain ways in this world where before Christ comes back, you expect to have the church having a position of large influence in society, um, uh, you know, of even uh, predominance in society. Um, so, you know, I think to say that you know, that there that there's a red flag when that happens. Well, are you contradicting that? No, because but <laughs> <laughs> good answer. But but the way the way that it's resolved is that the church shines forth light which constrains evil. It doesn't mean everybody's saved. And it doesn't mean people are even happy with the constraint of evil, but when the church is doing what it should be, when it's a bright light, evil is really constrained. Yeah, you know, there's some people who hold that that when Christ said that wide is the path that leads to destruction, that that's not a universal truth. That was just a truth at that point in time. I don't think that's biblically accurate at all. He says there's few chosen. That means there's few chosen. So how do you have the church have predominance? Well, the way you have the church have predominance is it's faithfully shining forth the light. And it doesn't mean that the world has to love it, but the world is constrained by the light because the light does drive out evil. So that's so it's victorious in certain ways, but it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved. I don't think you can find scriptural basis for that. Which, so I think if you have a situation, you know, where the church has a lot of influence and where, you know, it's the cool thing, all the rich and powerful want to become part of the church. I don't think you should see that as a bad thing, but I think you should see it as a time, a time to be very vigilant and to make sure that you are – um, keeping up this, the biblical standards of, you know, doctrine, of conduct, of, you know, the verses they're talking about, not giving preference to the people who are the rich and powerful. They're welcome to be in the church, but you don't get a special position. You don't get your sins overlooked 
just because of your position. And that all, you know, and like you were mentioning, but to make sure that we're not um, trying to coerce people in who are, you know, by saying let's the law needs to say you need to be part of a, a, a church to vote. Well, now we're running into an issue where we are coercing people who otherwise might not want to pretend to be a Christian. Now we're trying to get them to pretend to be a Christian. So, you know, I think we, in a way, we, we'd welcome a situation where all the rich want to be part of the church, but it's just a time to be very careful and make sure we're not, you know, we're not going to cause damage to the church in the long term. And the real, the real way to be vigilant is do not be deceived, little children. Those who practice righteousness are righteous, and it's to keep that standard keep the standard to say, if this person who's the rich and powerful sins, you put them out of the church. And that can be really hard in a society that's very, very, right? I mean, the Roman society was very much that if you had certain positions, you had enormous power. And so they were having to go up against the powerful, and that was very difficult and very dangerous to do. And you also have the thing of, like, let's not build massive cathedrals Let's, let's, if we have more resources available to us, how can we actually build the kingdom of God and not build big buildings that people are impressed by? I would probably disagree a little bit in the sense that I don't think we should desire there to be a time when everyone wants to join the church, that the church, that being part of the church is considered to be popular in that sense. But I think, but I do agree with you in the sense that when God does it, we shouldn't look at it and go, we're not, I mean, we don't, it's not our call in a sense. It's not something, it should not be something that the church affects. The church does not, the church should never be the one affecting it. And so in this case, they weren't, affecting, right? Affecting what? Causing that oh. to be the case. And but if, so, you're, if you're only preaching the gospel to the rich and powerful, you have a problem. Right. And so, and so what, and so that's kind of what I mean is in a sense, you should view it as a trial. The church should view it as we're, we're God is, we're being tested. And I think that is there's a part of it now, and it doesn't mean that like when it happened in after Pentecost, obviously that's a very specific time in history. But even then, it wasn't that coming into the church was suddenly popular. It was that there were a bunch of people in Israel who were devout, and God saved a bunch of them, and there were people in a position to be brought directly into the church. And so that's a very different time than here with Constantine. With Constantine, it was a real trial to the church. It was a real test to the church, particularly because they had been being persecuted. And there's a real part of it where that type of thing almost never happens without that having preceded it in some ways, because there is this part of it where the power of the church is them relying wholly upon God, them calling upon God, them seeking after God, and God blesses them, and that blessing at the same time causes them to be desired. They are seen as something desirable for the first time by the world because the power of God is being seen in the world through them. And I don't think what we're saying, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I don't think that what we're saying is that the problem necessarily manifested itself in the church right. during the lifetime of Constantine per se. It's right. more like we're saying, hey, this is opening up the door. When all of a sudden persecution as the norm is removed and now Christianity is legal and free and powerful people are attracted right, and to there's it. there's temptations to join for a reason other than following Perverse Christ. incentives, right. sure, sure. That, that all of a sudden, so now you're opening up the possibility of impurities in the church by worldly means. Right. And, and some of you may have experienced this. I mean, I know I did. I mean, there were times where we went through really difficult periods, and God really blessed. And God, I mean, like really blessed in real material ways. And I remember at times going, I don't want to go back. 
You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to go back to fighting. Right. And, and I think that's a part of it where the church is really being, the church gets tempted in that way at times. Because God's giving them blessings, and He's and He's going, and those blessings open up opportunities. And but there's a point where you got to look at somebody and go, "No, that's evil. That's wrong. We're not doing that. You're not part of the church. This is not right. This is not okay. This is not welcome." But if you do that, you still have in the back of your mind the lions. You know, what I mean, and I've never faced. I mean, so I'm facing many, many tiny lions. You know, little bitty, little bitty lions. Also known as gnats. <laughs> right. So I mean, yes, but. There's a part of it where your heart goes, I don't want to go back. I enjoy – this was great. And, I mean, and, you used the example before of Satan tempting Christ. And I think that's a worthwhile example to use because it is – the body of Christ gets tempted by the same thing. Right. The world says, hey, you can have the whole world. You can have all this control. You can have all this power. Just just take it from me rather than doing it God's way. And that's really the temptation. Right. And I do think the church fell, not immediately. It was a process, but it fell into that temptation. Your comment, Charles, is it like saying the church is always at war? The church is always at war against the works of the flesh, the works of the devil. It's always at war against worldliness. And for a time, you know, 300 or so years, the emperor of Rome stood in as a pretty good avatar of evil, you know, Pretty mm-hmm. good thing to push against and, and identify, hey, here's a place in which the church is at war in, in real flesh and blood kind of ways. And then all of a sudden, that's not there anymore. And what the church ought to do is just say, okay, the, the battleground has shifted. Where is it now? Because we're, it's not like we're not at war anymore. It's not like there's not sin in the world anymore that we have to fight against. We've just been, you know, where it's located now, we need to shift our efforts. But you're tempted to treat it as R&R, an extended period of rest and relaxation. And that's really, and that's a real threat to the church. Because like you said, you never stop being at war. And it doesn't mean God doesn't give you times of rest. And sometimes the war now is building in a different way than you were building before. But it's still war, like you said. And, And when you think... God has said we don't have to be at war anymore. You should ask yourself who you're following. Right. I mean, it's kind of similar to how a lot of, you know, homeschool families, their children get to a certain age and they're generally obedient. They're generally honoring. And so they say, well, this is great. We've, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're a teenager. They're not a nightmare. You know, this is great. We can just sit back. But then, you know, there's a whole new set of battles in what seems like it should be a time of rest. It actually it can't be or you're going right. to run into trouble. And it might be that you've won some battles and then the next thing is, okay, where's the next battlefront? Because you're not running out of enemies. Right. And we should just recognize the Bible does say all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Our goal is not to say let's get out of persecution because if you get out of persecution, that's always a sign. And I'm not saying it has to be collective persecution like that. And I'm not saying people need to be fed to the lions. But if you're not offending anybody in the world, you have a problem. That's the teaching of Scripture. What we've been talking about really brings us to uh, to First John five four. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world: our faith. And what was happening here was what Constantine was handing was a victory that didn't require the world to be overcome. What Constantine was offering was not to overcome the world; it was just to walk into it as equals. It was to walk into it as, as something to be desired in a sense, but not to be overcoming. 
and that's and that is a real temptation. And it, we can even lie to ourselves in the church and say we are overcoming the world when really the world's overcoming us. Right, because you're playing by their game now. You're you play playing by their game. You, you know, and you know the the seeker sensitive movement. This is what they do. They go, we're overcoming the world by appealing to the world. Well, no, that's not how you overcome the world. The way you overcome the world is you keep by the same principles, and that's how you overcome the world. It's a lot easier to overcome the world by being like the world. You think about, you know, someone who had access to the emperor and is a Christian. And, you know, you could easily see how they could be overcome by the world because, you know, if, see, there's a sin in the emperor's life that needs to be addressed. And imagine, you know, having to say, well, this person who has changed this whole country so that we can we can't even foresee being persecuted again. And, you know, not that long ago we were being persecuted. And now let me go and confront this, you know, the most powerful person in the world over something he's doing wrong. It's easy to see how you could be overcome by the world right there. You know, even if Constantine is, even if he is a Christian, you know, even if he was a Christian, you could, you know, his power and his world, his worldly power could easily overcome what your duty is. And it really requires faith. That's how you overcome the world, because you have enough faith to say, Constantine is powerful, but he's not nearly as powerful as God. And that requires faith. And like we're saying, to the church's credit in their day, they stood up on a theological issue to the emperor. No, Arianism is a heresy. We're not going there. Right. Um, but again, it is setting the groundwork for you have different battle lines, and those battle lines are, are they're shifting as the church wins in cases. Right. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, doing an episode on the, you know, the English Civil War at some point. And that, I mean, it's interesting because there you have that same situation where, you know, the Christians win, but then they splinter and they start fighting each other and they don't, they have more, you know, heresy arising. And so they end up going back and getting persecuted again. And it's kind of, you know, they avoid in, in the fourth century, they avoided that pitfall, but there, there were still others waiting for them. So how is it playing out today? I mean, what is this? You know, I think this is the same concept is very much affecting the church today. I mean, you, you brought up seeker-sensitive churches. I mean, you, you, you mentioned that in a sense. And there is a, there is just a very – it's a very real thing where the church is going – we're going to use the means of the world to attract people into the church. We're going to become like the world to do this. We're going to become more, more welcoming. We're going to become. There's a there's a debate over how winsome should Christians be. I mean, even if even if you're not necessarily fundamentally being seeker sensitive, that you're then going, you know, well, how should we how should we approach the world in a way, and how should this affect everything from politics to anything? That should our positions be so that should we be neutral in the world? Should we, you know, should we just be someone that speaks about spiritual things as if they don't touch on earthly things and. I mean, like Jonathan was saying earlier, if this was a complex thing, actually living things out in the world is complicated because the church has to be separate from the world in a very real way. And yet at the same time, the church has great influence and power in the world when it does that and when it does that properly. And so it's the, but you see this with the, I mean, the secret sensitive is, and, and all its permutations is, is, is a very good way of looking at it. You could, you could mislocate where persecution fits in the equation. You could think of persecution as something to be avoided at all costs. Right. And, you know, friends and family post these sorts of things on Facebook, and it's a hand-wringing thing rather than a, look at how 
God is blessing the church. So you can mislocate that, and then when you mislocate that, you are, you're drawing the battle lines in the wrong place, and you think maybe all we need is good politicians. And every one of us at this table thinks good politicians would be good. Would be good. That, that if we had men who actually feared God, that that would be better and that the country would be in a better place. That's what we all think. But if we think that that is the means by which the world becomes better or that the church becomes pure, then we're no different than 300 AD Rome. And I do think, you know, the seeker-sensitive movement, the primary thing that it lacks is a belief and trust in the fear of God. I think that the churches that allow whoever to come and don't worry about it, and they're just happy that they have this position and that they have a bigger building and et cetera, et cetera, they lose the fear of God. And when you're preaching the fear of God, that's not a popular message. But I think the church in general has dropped the message of the fear of God because we're not that much different. Well, we are different in a lot of ways. We're worse than the church at the time of Constantine because we're not preaching things. We're not standing firm on doctrine. We, we morph our doctrine to what's what people like and what people find acceptable. So that's why, you know. We, we've been losing for a long time in the church because for a long time we've said we should morph our doctrine to be what's acceptable to man rather than what's true in God's eyes. I mean, you have this uh, common phenomenon in the church where, you know, a celebrity or a politician gives the least indication of any interest in Christianity. You know, whether it's Justin Bieber, Kanye West, Donald Trump. Hulk Hogan. Oliver, Anthony, I get the, the latest and greatest. And then you, the church immediately jumps on that and says, this is great. We now, this celebrity has become a Christian. Hallelujah. And, you know, of course we want all those people to become Christians. But we, when we jump on the slightest interest, we are doing the, the same thing and just following after saying we need powerful people. We need people with a big reach in the media and that, and, you know, it's, they're saved. This is great. You know, now we're winning. And, you know, that's just not what we should be, what we should be doing. You know, Constantine had more change in his life than all those people by far. I mean, it's interesting because if you go and look at, you know, I remember with, with when John McCain was the, the GOP nominee and, you know, all the evangelicals are going, we can't support him. We can't support him. He's terrible. And then he chooses Sarah Palin. Well, if you go and look, and I have at videos of the church that Sarah Palin was a member of, none of us would go, this is a Christian church. I mean, that was like wild, radical, uh, charismatic. I mean, it was nuts, that church. And then every, all the these evangelicals that would denounce that church as being clearly not a church, they go, oh, she's a Christian. This is wonderful. We and can John do McCain is too. And John McCain is too. And so it's this desire that we want to lower our standards so that the good people come in, right? It's like like you said in James 2 where it says, you know, the person that has gold and is rich, he comes in and you give him the, the first place. We do that all the time and we drop our standards. And instead of saying the standards of a Christian do not change, and the reality to whom much is given, much is expected, the rich guy who comes in more is expected than the poor guy. I mean, in certain ways, certainly right. in the – and the use of his funds. I mean, and let's be honest, we've grown up in a nation where the Christian vote has been desired for as long as I've been alive. I mean, if you're a Republican and you're going to win, you have to get the Christian vote. There is no path to victory without it. And so, I mean, there's a part of where we've taken for granted sort of the Constantinian, you know, we were never slaves and the downtrodden and the, and the abused. 
we've been in a we've been a part of a desirable group for all our life and there's this part of it where they don't have to do hardly anything to get the vote they like you said they have to do something small they have to hold a prayer breakfast bring people in they don't even Pay have to lie about their seeing shields. a cross in the yeah they don't have to lie about seeing a vision in the sky i mean they don't have to go nearly that far i mean it used to be just make your pilgrimage to see billy graham right that was about what it took we've posted episodes about about voting and there's just we're not saying you can only vote for Christians, but there is this part of it where the person should have some evidence of the fear of God in their life. And if Christians set out the vote one time, there was one time where they went, nope, we're not voting for him. It's not happening. It will not happen. You must show that you fear God. You have to be completely against abortion. You have to say we won't murder. That's all you have to say. We absolutely will not murder under any condition. I'm going to call, you know, I mean, like, will you actually care about it? Not pay lip service to it instead of just, but if you actually did that, it would change politics. The next election would be different. And if you don't think it would change politics, go count how many Jews and how many Roman Catholics are on the Supreme Court. That's who they're pandering to when they do Supreme Court nominations. They don't worry about the Christian vote. They don't worry about the people who are going to say the Bible's true. They don't. Yeah, because we don't require anything of them. We don't require anything of them. Because we're so desperate, so desperate for approval. Well, no, We're supposed to go for the approval of God, not men. And so we're worse off in a lot of ways. We've adopted the same viewpoint far more than they did at the time of Constantine. So the next major event that you see the shift where this is when we'd start to call it the Roman Catholic Church, right? Because most of us, when we think of the Roman Catholic Catholic Church, the first thing we think of is there's a pope. Well, there wasn't a pope in the church until Pope Gregory the first comes along. He's the first pope. And at this time, there's some... Some fighting between the various popes. I think this is 590 or something like that. And Constantine was like, what, 320? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 312 was the battle that he became. Okay. He became emperor was 312. Okay. So you have in 590, Pope Gregory Gregory is the bishop of Rome. There's another bishop called John the Faster. And it doesn't mean that he runs fast, (laughs) just for clarity. Never ate. (laughs) He never ate. But John the Faster basically goes, I am the universal bishop. I'm the, I'm the one that's over all of Rome, the Roman Empire. I'm the bishop of the Roman Empire. So Pope Gregory I responds because, I mean, he's not the pope yet. He's just another bishop, right? He's just the bishop of Rome. And he writes to him, I say it without the least hesitation. Whoever calls himself the universal bishop, which is what the person was calling himself, this, this John the Faster, Whoever calls himself the universal bishop or desires that title is by his pride the precursor of Antichrist, because he thus attempts to raise himself above the others. The air into which he falls springs from pride equal to that of Antichrist. For as that wicked one wished to be regarded as exalted above other men like a god, so likewise whoever would be called sole bishop exalteth himself above others. You know it, my brother. Hath not the venerable council of Chalcedon conferred the honorary title of universal upon the bishops of this of this apostolic see, Rome, whereof I am, by God's will, the servant. And yet none of us hath permitted this title to be given to him. None hath assumed this bold title, lest by assuming a special distinction in the dignity of the episcopate, we should seem to refuse it to all the brethren. He's saying that if, if you want to say you're above everybody, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. And then, of course, 
he becomes over everybody because he goes, hey, I'm the Bishop of Rome. If anybody's going to have this position, which he already said was the precursor to the Antichrist, that, that you know, it should be the Roman bishop that does it. So he ends up becoming the first pope after saying that it's the position of the Antichrist. And, and you should even see some of the things about this particular quote, right? He says anybody who does this wants, has the spirit of the Antichrist. But he calls the guys talking to my brother. And he says that the Venerable Council of Chalcedon conferred the honorary title of universal upon the bishops of Rome. So in other words, his, his attitude at the same time, he's, he doesn't believe that someone who's trying to do this is the Antichrist. He's, you're my brother, and this group that said we should do it, they're venerable. This, I mean, so, so you understand even it, as he's saying something that's very true, I mean, when you see the reformers later say that the, that the pope is that antichrist, he agreed. He says he agrees with it. As he becomes it. As he becomes it. And so, you know, this idea of putting one man as the head of the church instead of Christ as the head of the church, I mean— this is the huge shift. This is a, an enormous shift in, in how the church looks at the world and how the church looks at itself. I mean, was there a way in which Constantine, the, the embracing of Constantine, what caused Rome to become this preeminent position among the bishops? Was that tied directly to Constantine? Was that, you know what I mean, in a sense, within the church even? Well, but, I mean, you had it. I mean, it was it was quite i mean quite a while i mean rome was the the capital of a huge area so sure. you know having the a bishop in that city before constantine was already a prestigious thing but i think what i mean is is there's a part of it where the church the spirit of the church is to war against that right and like we were talking about i mean scripture actually commands the church to war against that and so what i'm saying is is when you when we're saying that these things set it up you, it's easy to go, well, of course that's going to happen. The, but God says, no, that's not an of course. That's not Obviously, the world will want that to happen, but the church will overcome that. And there's a part of it where today we don't, I mean, I don't sit here and go, obviously, there should be a big city where a church where we should follow. You know what I mean? I mean, there's this part but the where— But the thing about, you know, I said, of course, once you have a bishop— no, 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 I so understand. That, I mean, that, and that's the, I mean, that's another big point is when they say a bishop is not just one of multiple overseers of a local flock, or they're saying a bishop is in control of a city with multiple churches under him. I mean, then you've, you know, now you've already made it about one guy in an area. And right. it's not a hard jump to say the guy in the capital of the empire should be over all everyone right. else. Right, because as soon as, you know, as soon as Henry VIII splits off the, the church, I mean, it's the bishop that's near him becomes the chief of the the English church. I mean, right. that's just a natural thing. Once you've already accepted well, that, that there well, has to be— it's actually the—isn't it the Archbishop of— Canterbury. Oh, okay, it is Canterbury versus York. Okay, never mind. And so as you—once you establish this idea of hierarchy, then you're going to flesh out your hierarchy. Right. That's just what happens. And so they flesh it out, and, and who else is it going to be? I think the other one may have been in—, in uh, Byzantia in Constantinople. And so was that where Faster was? Is that yeah, I okay, think that's okay, where that's Faster okay. was. Okay. And so, you know, they're like competing for who should be the universal bishop. Right. Because there are kind of two capital cities. Right. And so, you know, the one in Rome, Gregory, was was more powerful, but they're wrestling very using very, very human means, very political means. I mean, it's 
the church has become political. And so they're going, there's an emperor in the state, there should be an emperor in the church. And that was basically the pope. And, you know, the scripture warned about this, or Jesus warned about this in the scriptures in Matthew 23, 6 through 13. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. He was in heaven, and do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. I mean, a lot of times we hear that about, I mean, we think of that, call no man father. But it's really useful to consider the context of what he's saying, because basically this is what he's charging the Pharisees for. He's saying that because what you want is a position, you want to be that spirit of Antichrist, to, to use Gregory's term. Because you want that, you're not only hurting yourself, you're also shutting up the kingdom of God for other people. And so they've, so the Roman Catholics, by adopting this, what they are ado- doing is adopting a new Phariseeism. They're creating a new Phariseeism where you have these special people, these elites, that they're the only ones that know things about God. And so you weaken the knowledge of the church by exalting certain men and saying, these are the men with knowledge. These are the ones that have position. Right. And it's the type of thing where, you know, the saying is that Rome wasn't built in a day and the, the Roman papacy wasn't built in a day either. You know, it took hundreds of years of mistakes and growing mistakes so that, you know, Gregory can take another step forward. And he's just he's referencing mistakes that have been made in the past. And those people referencing mistakes. So, you know, there it's cumulative errors that end up leading you to dangerous places. Right, and even when he said, look, the council has anointed the, the Holy See, the, the bishopric of Rome, as the, as the universal bishop, right, the pope, that, I mean, those errors are, the other bishops are getting together and saying, hey, we have these two guys to choose, we choose you. And he's not really going, they were wrong. Even though he said it's the spirit of Antichrist to do it, he's still saying, hey, this is, you know, and so there's all these errors so that you get the group of people together representing the church, and they all agree with this. It's not like Pope, it's not like Gregory is somehow manipulating them in the last minute. No, this is, this is ingrained in the church because the church has been looking towards the world and saying, we want to be like the world. We want a king just like the world, right? This is the same exact thing that happened at the time of Saul. We want a king like the world. Well, this is what happened in the church. We want an emperor like the state has. And then the church became a state. It functionally became a state. And when you you look at the politics of the medieval world, the papacy as a state with its own armies and military funds, I mean, it was something that had to be considered if you wanted to go to war with somebody who was nearby. I mean, that's something that Gregory himself was pretty involved in because, you know, at this point, the church already has a lot of money and power. It's also at the point where the Roman Empire is crumbling and where you have, you know, invasions from, you know, barbarians. And so you have, you know, him being a power player and him at times, you know, acting independently of the empire and where you do kind of have the idea of the pope running his own little country. And I mean, and you look and you have like, you know, John the Faster, who's down in the Byzantine Empire, which isn't having the same problems because with Constantine, he almost splits the empire. 
but they choose the one that's in the place that's falling apart, right? They choose the one where they can create their own state, like you said, and that's kind of what happens going forward as they get more and more of a state because the state that was based on Rome is collapsing. I think something you said about the church was looking at the world and just look at the order of that is the first thing happens is the church is tempted to be to be welcomed into the world, to be have those who are powerful in the world part of the church. Then you get to church polity itself where they're actually deciding what should the organization of the church be, and they begin to copy the world in that way as well, where not only do we want the wealthy to be in the church and the powerful, but we want to create within the church the powerful. And so you have, I mean, that you have that, these direct emulation of those things, that is what is creating the, the Roman Catholic Church. And it's important to recognize what's happening here because, I mean, the emperors expected to be worshipped, the Roman emperors. And yeah, the empire's like collapsing. It doesn't have the power that it did before. But the emperors, that was kind of the expectation. And so now all of a sudden you have the Bishop of Rome who's basically acting as an emperor. Well, he expects to be worshipped. And you look forward, and that's basically, there's a reason why people are expected to kiss the ring. Even presidents of the United States have kissed the ring of the bishop. Well, why do they do that? That's an act of worship. And so all of a sudden he's in the, we've set this, or they've set this person in place. The visible church has set this person in place that's being worshipped in the place of God. Right, but And the way he gets that position isn't by um, just a, by, by He's not stepping from orthodoxy into apostasy because, no. you know, he has a lot of writings and, you know, I haven't read them, but I think he has a lot. <laughs> but I'm going to talk <laughs> about a lot, you know, I, I have a lot of opinions. Sorry. <laughs> but, but, you know, but he has a lot of good things to say. I mean, I think a big thing that he was pushing for was people need to be reading the Bible. Well, that's very contrary to what later popes would say. That's a lot better than, you know, because they would say if you're translating the Bible to the common tongue, we're going to you know, execute you. And he's saying everyone needs to be reading the Bible. Um, and, you know, he has a lot of good things to say. He has a lot of bad things to say. But he didn't do it by just going off the deep end of apostasy. He go, he does it by, you know, looking back, we can see he was one, you know, moving them one step, a big step down a road they've been already going on, and he's pushing them towards worldliness, toward a focus on, um, you know, the church as a political power. I mean, in one sense, he doesn't sound super anti-Christy, like Joshua was saying. I mean, like when you hear him, like he sounds super anti-Christy. Well, no, no, what to I me. mean is, is when you hear some of the things he's saying, he you don't go immediately, oh, this guy's obviously the antichrist, where he's not like. Go but at the same time, when you understand the context of what he's saying, this is the spirit of the antichrist, right? And I mean, and this is and this is required, right? I mean, you like you're saying, you can't understand the person who's going to lead you astray is going to sound good to you. And even going to sound accurate, right? Because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and that's what you should expect the Antichrist to look like, the angel of light, not the angel of darkness. The this paganism of Rome, we would we would consider completely unsophisticated. A man becomes a god. I mean, oh, what silliness is this? But then you've got this Roman version, of, well, it's— Functionally, we kind of treat him like he's a god on earth. And at the same time, we develop this other system of sainthood where they kind of become gods after they're dead. And just like Constantine's miracles where you just make up things that they did, right? And they and they are they are actually worshipped. Well, you can listen to rumors. You don't need <laughs> right. to make them up yourself. <laughs> right. You can get other people to make them up. 
Does anybody remember a miracle that they did? Oh, I've got a miracle. Oh, great. Look, look at that. They just come out of the woodwork when you ask <laughs> them. It happened somewhere in the last six years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, you know, and now we would look at Catholicism and say, well, that's pretty unsophisticated to be all but worshiping saints, to be praying to saints, to have one person who's a representative of God on earth despite a lot of corruption. And we, you know, we would say that's unsophisticated. But we can be heading down that same path when we are exalting celebrity pastors, putting them above any criticism, um, and and we're 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 just starting down that same road. And we should recognize this happens beyond you know just things like authority and stuff. Because even at conferences where I have this concern, if somebody comes up and asks me a question, do you just tell them the answer? Or do you say? Go reach it, search it for yourself, because it's very easy to become the person where people go to you and just say, well, what are the answers? But that's not what we're supposed to do. The Holy Spirit is supposed to guide us to truth. But at times, you just you want to give them the answer because they need the answer to their question. But long-term in shepherding, it can't be, right? There's a big difference between what I would do at, at the church that I pastor versus what I do at a conference, because at a church that I pastor, if the person's not studying it for themselves and just asking me questions, there's going to be a point where I go, you need to read it. What do you think it means? And so, but there's a lot of churches where that doesn't happen, where the pastor's word is the final word on anything, and the people aren't expected to study it. And that's very much like Roman Catholicism. From now on, any comments under the episode will just reply, study it for yourself. (laughs) You have this part where also he says he gave some to be teachers. And so you have to put that in context. He, it's very much like what you're saying is, is you don't want someone to become the person. You just go to them, you ask them, and they are the teacher. They are the person that says it, and that's what it, you do. It's it. When Jesus says that, it's telling you that there's two kinds of temptations you have to avoid. You have to avoid wanting to be that person who hears those sorts of things, and you have to recognize that there's going to be a temptation to want to be the person who says those kinds of things. Much like our good you know, friend Bishop Gregory warned everyone about. <laughs> right, with the spirit of at- the Antichrist. <laughs> right, before he yeah, went and grabbed it himself. We should just recognize how, I mean, I've seen that happen in the church a lot, and we should just continue to recognize just how how much people need to watch out for that because I've seen it happen, and I've seen it happen frequently with people who later fall where everybody goes, well, this is what he said. Well, that's that's not the right standard. The right standard is what did God say, and if the person arguing it is arguing it based on what God said, that's one thing. But if it's just this is what he thinks, well, who cares? And it's a particular temptation for those of us in the Reformed world. You know, hey, we would love to be called teacher. I mean, wouldn't you like to be considered erudite and learned and have those greetings uh, in the Ligonier marketplace <laughs> or wherever it is? Right. You know, it's don't think that because your doctrine is all P's and Q's taken care of that you're somehow immune from this particular thing that Jesus warns against. I mean, and it's, and it's just really important to remember. I mean, like we're talking about celebrity pastors, and even in your own church. I mean, I think about like John MacArthur to me is a good example, where he's somebody who he's done a lot of great exegeting the scriptures and a lot of good things for the church. There are people who really need to be careful to not put him in a position to tempt him to fall. You know what I mean? It's I mean, he need, it is good for him to be accountable to his church, to be held accountable as just a man who is an older brother, not. You know what I mean? And and in his church, there is going to be a temptation 
to defer to him more than they should. There's going to be a, I mean, and like, and if you've ever been in a place where people get attacked, I mean, there's a part where you go, I'm never going to let anybody attack my pastor again. And there's a, that's, it's not wrong to desire that. It's not wrong to, but there's all, you got to be really careful because there's a part of it where the way you prevent it from ever being attacked again is you don't ever let anybody say anything. You say he's, he can't be, he can't be questioned. That's a way to keep him from being attacked again. And that's not scriptural. It's not biblical. It's not, and it's it's not good for him. It's not good for the church. It's not good for you. It's just bad all around. And I will say this, you know, he had, you know, MacArthur had that strange fire conference years ago. And to me, when I watched part of that conference, it was people going to kiss the Pope's ring, which is not good for MacArthur and not good for the people doing it. But that's what it looked like. I hear the talks that were made, and it's like these men should be able to handle Scripture better than that. But yet they knew what MacArthur wanted. And so we should recognize that even, and I'm not saying he's not orthodox. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying recognize the level of temptation. And I've seen it among other men that are well-known. They have a real strong temptation. I want to be able to be heard. And if I have to kiss a ring to do it, I'll kiss a ring to do it. And that happens. I could name names that it happens to, names that you would recognize that I guarantee that it happens to. And so we shouldn't think this is something far off. This can be an orthodox people. It's a real temptation that's out there to kiss somebody's ring in order to get a position. So we've talked about a couple of different ways that the church started drifting towards the environment that made Roman Catholicism possible. We talked about Constantine and just the broadening of access to the church. And then we've talked about how you've insert this hierarchy, starting with a pope. But there's also doctrinal things and practical things that begin to come out of that. One of the most significant ones that we would want to say is that the use of images in the church, as opposed to being a word-based church, shifting to an image-based church. And just like you see the shift of, I mean, let's be serious, by 787, most people didn't know Latin anymore, but yet the masses in Latin. Most people didn't know the language. And so there's been this separation from knowledge of the word to something else. And as you create this, this special class of people, it's the class that knows Latin versus the non-Latin speakers, they're not really getting that much out of the, of the church service. And so the Second Council of Nicaea meets in 787, and here's what they, what they conclude for things that mutually illustrate one another, undoubtedly possess one another's message. Given this state of affairs and stepping out as though on the royal highway, following as we are the God-spoken teaching of our Holy Fathers and the tradition of the Catholic Church, for we recognize that this tradition comes from the Holy Spirit who dwells in her, we decree with full precision and care that like the figure of the honored and life-giving cross, revered and holy images, whether painted or made of mosaic or of other suitable material, are to be exposed in the holy churches of God, on sacred instruments and vestments, on walls and panels and houses and by public ways. These are the images of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and of Our Lady without blemish, the holy God-bearer, and of the revered angels, and of any of the saintly holy men. The more frequently they are seen in representational art, the more are those who see them drawn to remember and long for those who serve as models and to pay these images the tribute of salutation and respectful veneration. Certainly this is not the full adoration, Latria, 
in accordance with our faith, which is properly paid only to the divine nature, but it resembles that given to the figure of the honored and life-giving cross, and also to the holy books of the Gospels and to other sacred cult objects. Further, people are drawn to honor these images with the offering of incense and lights as was piously established by ancient custom. Indeed, the honor paid to an image traverses it, reaching the model, and he who venerates the image venerates the person represented in that image. So now all of a sudden you've moved to the point where they're saying you should, you should bow down and venerate images of saints because by doing that you're, you're worshiping the person. And so we've, images are adopted in the church as a means to bring veneration and worship to people who are depicted in pictures, whether Christ or Mary or any of the saints. Right. Well, you know, and you can draw a direct line between saying we need a pope and saying, well, now we have to worship images of holy people. Because, I mean, they're, 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 this statement presumes that you should be venerating a person when that, you know, that there's already an issue there. But when, now that you've had the pope, now that you've established these you know, this, you know, litany of saints. Now, now we're going to bow down to idols. I mean, when you get to the end of that section, indeed, the honor paid to an image traverses it, reaching the model. And he who venerates the image venerates the person represented in that image. It's kind of just going, idolatry is real. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's this part of where no, I mean, no, but it's not latria; it's veneration. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and so a difference without which a distinction. Is, I mean, when the church isn't looking at you, going, don't fool yourself. What you think of as veneration can be worship. I mean, this is this is. I mean, when you look at like Japanese culture, where they where they venerate the elderly. There's this part of where they get in Shintoism and things like that, where they effectively worship their ancestors. You can go, it's just veneration. And a church would come in and look at you and go, the true church would go, don't fool yourself. It's You think it's just veneration and it's worship. And here the church is going, you can't fool yourself. <laughs> if you say it's veneration, it's just veneration. You can't sin in this way. All you have to do is venerate. I mean, You're just worshiping them. You're not serving them. Right. right. That's the words that they're using. They're saying you're not serving them. You're just worshiping them. Well, worship is reserved to God alone, too. Right. And we are to serve God. You're not allowed to make that distinction, but they draw the distinction. But you can see how, how the pattern works, right? I mean, you can see how they apostatize. And so they get to the point where the people don't read the Bible anymore, where they don't have any knowledge of what the Word of God says. And so then all of a sudden they can turn them to worshiping men, which is what the Roman Catholic Church is about after 787. It's pure worship of men. And yet, I mean, decreed, that is their standard. It's decreed that they worship men rather than God. And yet they go, you know, they've completely lost the Word. And the Word is that check. The Word is what stops it. Because without the word of God, if it's just the opinions of men, men are always going to end up exalting themselves. Right. There's a popular meme format that shows people in a boardroom and they're like, there's this problem. We have this, we have this, you know, like we have this problem. People don't know the word of God. And then someone suggests like something obvious that would solve the problem. And the next panel is like launching him out of the window. You know, he's being, I mean, that's literally, you know, people don't understand the word of God. What should we do? Have them read the Word of God? Absolutely not. Images. We'll go to images. Were, were you appealing to an image for that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just yeah. Just, yeah. Tune into the video. You know, we have an image for just you. Just a verbal meme. I just yeah. We're 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 replacing all visual memes with verbal ones. 
And and part of it is that a bishop held a, held a synod, I don't remember where it was, like a few years before this, and basically said that we need to stop using all these images. It was iconoclasty where they're basically saying we can't use images at all. This is rejecting the word of God. It's replacing it with with the works of man. It's. It, I mean, how many passages are there in the in the Old Testament that go, you know, you take this this you know, log out of the wood, you carve it, you use part of it to burn on the fire to bake your bread, and the other you bow down and think that it can that it can serve you. And and they do this and they're doing exactly the same thing. And he's going and you know the other bishops going, we just need to stop all this. So then the Pope comes along and goes, No, we will have a synod that proves that this is the right thing to do. And so this was very much the guy, you know, to use your illustration, <laughs> verbal illustration. The guy being thrown out the window. Did they launch into a stained glass window? And and, and we shouldn't think that just pure up straight paganism is any different than this. A pagan isn't looking at that statue saying, oh, that's my God right there. You know, they recognize that they're they're, they're worshiping that because it passes through. What's the term? Traverses. He who venerates the image venerates the thing, the person represented in that image. Right. I mean, they're doing exactly. You know, when they when there's, uh, you know, thousands of different copies of some god, you know, Diana of the Ephesians. Nobody believes that every one of those is a god. They recognize that they're worshiping something else that's then represented by this thing. But that's just how paganism works. And this is just paganism unvarnished coming into the church. Well, it's varnished in a way because they're calling it Christianity. (laughs) They are taught, they do say things like from the Holy Word, but you know, it's, it's not. Right. It's completely contrary to the things taught by God, the things commanded by God, the things that we're warned about. Because this is what paganism looks like. And this is where the Roman Catholic Church is now, the full-blown Roman Catholic Church, is with this step because it's just a pagan group of people. And and you realize there's other things that happen along the way to get you to this point. One of them, like you said, is, well, nobody knows the word because it's all in Latin. Or by nobody, you have a very small class— and so even when the word is preached or read, it's not understood. Nobody's translating it into the and local you don't get languages. Ahead, and you don't get ahead by reading the word. You get ahead in a system that's about the worship of men by doing what your boss wants. So, I mean, the word of God being read is, I mean, it's being copied with great flourishes and great, it's being done very prettily, but nobody's bothering to read it. They're just copying it. And There's more pictures in the margins now. Right. And, and they keep adding pictures in the margins. Literacy and, is hard. Especially if you think that let's educate all the people. So if you want anybody, just a common person to read, that's a really hard undertaking. You're talking about changing an entire culture. But to get people to look at pictures and statues, that's not hard. You're, what you're asking of an audience is that's the, the, the lowest level. Oh, look, here's a picture. Kind of, you know, see how it appeals to your emotions. Let's do the seven stations. Eliminate the gospel and just do the seven stations of the cross so that you look at seven pictures and you're saved, which is basically what they went to. All you need are a few artists, and that's it. You don't have to educate an entire culture. All you need are a few artists. Anybody who's ever taught a kid to read knows, like, the worst thing are the books that have the pictures above, you know, they have a picture of a happy cat, and then it will say the happy cat underneath it. Well, your kids just look at the picture and go, you know, I mean, they, 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 they just sort of start to, you know, I mean, they just, they just play this game with it. I mean, there's just, there's this part of it where, I mean, 
this actually is part of the difficulty is we love images. We love images better than we do the actual words and understanding the words. And this is what, I mean, we shouldn't think that this doesn't happen in spiritual ways. It's exactly the same thing. I think we're seeing that a lot of these things are, again, these same techniques are being adopted in the world. I mean, most of us that live in America, you see a certain picture on the wall and you, you know that's supposed to be a representation of Christ. And the Bible's very clear that you're not supposed to make any image, certainly not of God himself. But yet the answer is, well, God made him into an image. Well, God's allowed to. And he made him into an image that lived and breathed and walked and all those things so that he was the living image of God because he was God and he was man. But that doesn't give us any right to do the same thing. And when we start to do that, we belittle, we're doing the same thing that they're doing where you're taking God, making him smaller, making him manageable, making him easier to understand, making him more relatable instead of going, he's God. And instead we go, he's like us. He's no different than the picture that I have of my wife. And it's easy for us to forget how much, I mean, how much the Bible, even the promise of the Holy Spirit, because if you remember what what they wrote in Nicaea 2, where they basically say, this has been done by the Holy Spirit. Well, God actually, Christ actually said what the Holy Spirit would do in John 16, 13 through 15. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but he, whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said to you, he will take a mine and declare it to you. Not draw pictures for you. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit speaks. He's not, he doesn't do pictographs to make it more understandable. But yet when you reduce it that it's all about pictures, they're pretending like this was authorized by the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit came to speak the words of Christ. To speak is why he was sent. And it's not just an accident of history. We are talking about the God who controls all things and all times. And if he had wanted to convey his gospel by some means other than the word, there's nothing that was in his way. If he wanted to convey the gospel by oil paintings, if he wanted to convey the gospel by television, you know, he could have had Jesus Christ come at the time in which that was the dominant way of conveying things. And that's not what he did. He came as the word. And that's right. how he's described to us. And and what happens when Jesus comes and enters the world as the word is just the outworking of all of Scripture building up to that point. You know, Dan was talking about how that Jesus Christ was the very image of God and that God made him an image. And you can see this in John 1, 12 through 14. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And also earlier in the verse, those who become the children of God, if God wants to show the world who he is, he shows it through the Christians, not through images drawn by others not through pictures shown by, I mean, that the church is the body of Christ. And so the way the world sees the church, the way the world sees God is through the church, not through the church's use of images, not through the church's, again, the use of these, these fleshly, earthly things 
that are not heavenly at all. I mean, the verse earlier talked about how that he that is born of God overcomes the world. And appealing to images is just the... It is just very worldly. It is as worldly as you can get. And I mean, it says that those, you know, the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. His name is his reputation, what he's done, who he is, the things that were important to him, the things that he came to do. Those are not expressed by images. They can't be. His holiness is not expressed by image, and you can't just like draw a halo around him and go, oh, we've now explained what holiness is. The things that are required to have faith, you have to believe in who he is, which requires a lot more than a two-dimensional image. It requires a lot more than a hundred two-dimensional images. You know, a picture is worth a thousand words, sure, but a thousand wo- a picture, you know, can't nearly express what a thousand words can express. I mean, it goes both ways. And so the things like holiness, righteousness, you know, sovereignty, these are not things that can be rightly expressed in pictures. You can't express those concepts. You cannot express his name, which is what must be believed. And so what we do then is we just reduce his name to an image too. You just have to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, that's the same thing that they did with images. And that's what the church does now all the time is you just have to profess Jesus Christ and you're saved. You don't actually have to believe in his name. Believing in his name is a lot deeper than that. It's actually who he was and what he did and why he came and all those things. And a while back, we did a whole episode on images versus words and the second commandment and getting into a lot more detail on this. And if you're, if you're interested in that, we'll put a link in the description. I mean, and as we talked about with all the other things, how this plays out today in the world, I mean, one of the first things that actually came to my mind actually was uh, was almost actually Sunday school, which wasn't directly related to images, but it was related to the issue. It's not related to images. It is. is. But what I mean is, is it was related to that thought process of going, there's this problem. Something's going on. What do we do? And, And while they didn't immediately go, we have to do images right then, they went, people don't understand the, people aren't studying the word of God. Children don't know it. Parents aren't doing their job. How do we fix this? And it did. It does devolve down into effectively images in the end, but it just ends up being that same process of thinking. Instead of going, we need to disciple the fathers, we need to disciple the parents, we need to say, if we're Christians, this is what the church does. That ch- the, the church we have will teach the children who don't have parents, and that will, you know, that people in the church will do that because the church isn't this institution; it's the members working together and fulfilling the roles that God has given them to do. And so it was both the spirit of it and then the actual actions of it that it reminded me of. And I mean, it's just, I've seen more and more where, you know, churches, you know, even a church that was doing pretty decent expository preaching, they started to show movies before, you know, you show with a five minute movie clip before the sermon. Well, that's horrible, like horrible, because it's going, the word's insufficient. And if the word's insufficient, Jesus Christ is the word. He's not the word in the picture. He's not the movie. He's the word. And if the word's insufficient, you're really declaring Christ is insufficient. And I think there's a lot of churches that, you know, this I don't know if it's still popular, but it was popular for a while, 20 years ago, to, to do movie clips every week. Well, that's just that's it's just still horrible. Popular. Is it I, yeah. I'm out of touch, you know what I mean? It still happens. <laughs> yeah. And this is just this is just so contrary to what people need is the word. But the reason they do that is people don't actually want the Bible. They don't want the Word of God. So to keep them entertained, to give them that little burst to sit through the 20 to 15-minute sermon, 
you know, they have to show a little video clip or a movie clip or something to get them to be interested for that length of time. Well, I mean, it says in First Peter 2 that if you don't desire the word, you're not saved. But yet we want to go, the only way that people would listen to a sermon is by giving them something to rev them up a little bit before they have to sit through that 15 minutes. I think I probably, I may have shared this when we did the episode about uh, about the power of images. But, I mean, when I was 14, I was going to summer camps. There was a, my dad was a kind of more conservative. He really didn't like having videos and things. But there was a guy from another group that he, there was this animated series of the New Testament that came out and it had like the Apostle Paul and it had this this song that was actually just really moving, helped me fight the good fight, I think. You know, I can't remember this. I can still sort of remember it. It was, and I remember they showed these on, you know, during Sunday, uh, each week, you know, during the morning chapel. And I remember going to one of the guys and going, because afterwards he would give a lesson. And I would go, why don't you just do the video? And I, and I, and I meant, I knew both the answer and I was, I said, it's, it's incredibly moving. It's incredibly, and, and he kind of went, well, you know, because the word of God is supposed to be, you know, more powerful and, you know what I mean? <laughs> But I remember having this wrestling match in my head because there was this part of it where, I mean, I was like going, you're not going to top that video. And there's this part of, but, but the video is also not going to, you're never going to go beyond the video. Right. You're, it's never going to take you anywhere. And it's not going to really take you to, to understand Christ and to truly believe in him. It, you're just going to have this emotional moment. But it was, I mean, I, I just, this is, this is how big of a deal it was, is I knew all the conservative things. I knew all the right things about it, and I still looked at it and went, this is fantastic. I love this. But see, you just made a giant assumption that just having an emotional moment wasn't going somewhere. Right. And that's where we are at the church. We think all we need to do is get people to have emotional moments of the appropriate kind and the appropriate volume, and then the church has done something to reach them. Which is why the Passion of the Christ was so popular with the church, because it's this, oh, look at how much he suffered. That wasn't him. Right. And he didn't suffer. He was an actor. It was a horror but, film. But, but it was it was even more than that. It's look at the ways that the church can use this for messaging. No, I know. You can because, make it attractive. Because, right, because to, they saw it as, oh, look at how much he suffered for you. And that, look, you should really believe in him because look what he did. Look at how much pain he had. You, you should do this as a as – a, as invite all your friends. This is an evangelical outreach. And it was it was just horrible because – in the end, nobody walked away with an understanding of the gospel. It was it was the seven stations of the cross in a movie rather than stills. That's what it was. And they were very deliberate. I mean, Mel Gibson is a very radical Roman Catholic, right? His, his production company is called Icon Productions. So it's— Pretty yeah. much nails it. Yeah, I mean, I today I ended up reading the Declaration of Independence in full. And it just really struck me how against images it is because it's it's not sensational language at any point. I mean, there's no there's no hyperbole, there's no exclamation points thrown throughout. But if you read it, the people who wrote it believed that the truth, the words of truth, were the most powerful things you could do. I mean, they they detailed without without extravagance. Great atrocities that have been committed against them. I mean, you read them, and they just they read like little short statements. But when he says they've quartered troops in our homes, they expect you to know that that means their daughters were raped. You know, what I mean, when he says right. all these things, they expect you to know from the truth to be able to, of 
to reason and to think, right. which is images are really terrible at pe- teaching logic and thinking. Right. And so, I mean, this and this was at that point when we wrote, when we had those things, this was the, the national belief was that words were the most, the true words were one of the most powerful things in the world. And we're not there anymore. And there's a real reason for that. I mean, so it's just, it's, it's really interesting when you look at what actually had the most really powerful beneficial effect was it the declaration of independence or a movie about it which would which would really move a culture in the right direction and you really have to sit back and go what does it require for those words to have that effect it really requires a church in there who's working and going the word of god is the most powerful thing because there's a reason they believed words were powerful but that but those that movie can be very powerful for 15 minutes and feel a lot more powerful than the words. Yes. But the reality is it's words that actually change things. Yes. When you look at what happened in the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, you know, 15 to 1600 or so, you realize that all three of these areas that we've talked about were significant battlegrounds where the church needed to reform. So you think about just the relationship of the church to politics. This was a really big deal everywhere where the Reformation took root. And it had... It had different shape in each of those places. It was different in Germany than the Netherlands, than France, than England, than Switzerland. And and you can see how those churches, as they developed, and how they solved or addressed that problem have changed over time. Right. Um, you know, it's and it's a pretty big deal. The Lutheran church, you know, Lutheran pastors right now are in, in Germany, they are employees of the state, which we think is just absolutely nuts. But that was because of things that happened during the Protestant Reformation with our good friend Martin Luther. And then also, you know, you can go through and just say, well, look at what happened with church hierarchy. Obviously, breaking away from the Pope is one thing, but then you have to say, what does the Bible say about church hierarchy? And it happens different on the continent than it does in England, where more or less England just replicates Roman hierarchy with an English king, and they call it Protestantism, but it really isn't. And that's why you have Puritanism as a movement that develops saying, no, we haven't gone far enough. There's more work that needs to be done. And then images, I mean, just moving away from images back to the word. This is such a huge thing that happened pretty much anywhere that that the Reformation happened, and and probably more successfully on, on these other two fronts, just to say, hey, I, you know, some monk somewhere finds a copy of the Word of God, reads it, and says, everybody needs to read this. And in order for everybody to read this, we have to translate it, and then we have to teach them how to read. And in some cases, we have to create a written language to them because they don't have it. And, you know, and that's a real big mover in changing the entirety of Western culture, was moving away from these things that we've identified as problems that developed Roman Catholicism. Kind of the question now for us is, as we see these problems reasserting themselves in the church, how are we going to go about reforming again and not just going back and saying, oh, look, the, the Reformation wasn't that great, and aren't we glad that we're downstream of that? I think that you know a lot of these things, they haven't, you can see problems with them. We have the celebrity pastors. We have these other things. But the fundamental thing that we've lost is this last one where we don't want the word in the church typically. What we want is nice anecdotes. What we want is right verbal verbal pictures. How many pastors get up on a Sunday morning and they just tell a story? 
you know, that's there's been this huge movement away from the word, and we live in a culture where most people can read. But there's lots of cultures in the world that that's not true for, and there. But in the United States, we don't really read our Bibles more than those other cultures that are illiterate. That wasn't what people thought Christianity was at the time of the Reformation. Christianity was thought to be, you read the Word of God. Now we go, what? You read the Bible every day? What kind of religious nut are you? Instead of going, no, that's what it's supposed to look like. You're supposed to desire the Word of God. And so the church, because it wants to be accepted by the world, just goes, yeah, come Sunday morning and hear a sermon instead of, you know, God expects you to actually want to know him. And he expects you to want to know him at the cost of knowing the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and there's a real part of it because people want to go, and I mean, we've talked about kind of doing an episode on sort of a form of reformed worldliness, and I think we've done episodes similar to it. But I mean, looking at it, there is a part where you really have to go, there's a point where you have to go, I don't, I don't want the things, I don't, I can't be, like I said, the church has to be separate from the world, and that has to be a real line. It has, you have to go outside the camp to worship God. You have to go outside. You can't be in the world, and your pursuit of God has to be at the cost of your knowledge of the world. And I think that that's a line that we're we're constantly going. Well, no, I don't really have to do that. I can I can have a a God life balance. And while we might not completely embrace images yet, and a lot of churches, they want to do skits, they want to do puppet shows, they want to do all these other things that we should recognize where this leads. This leads to you just put pictures up on the wall. That's what it leads to. And and then all of a sudden you're venerating those pictures. You're worshiping images because the heart of man is to worship images. The antidote to that is the word of God. And when the church moves away from that and says other things are more attractive, other things are are easier, other things are more pleasing, and they 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 tickle your fancy more. Well, no, that's how the church dies. That's how the church apostatizes. And so as we think of these things, we shouldn't think of them as minor things. They are huge shifts that cause real problems and are causing real problems in the church today. There has been a real rise of memes, in, and it's interesting watching it, even like memes explaining biblical things and a reliance on them to explain biblical things. And it's interesting. That makes it, and it doesn't mean that if you, ever, if you ever use one that it's wrong. But you should just really look at it and go, there is Why this do part I need of the picture. There is this part of it where, I mean, I've seen it. I mean, it's been an absolute explosion of them. And I've even seen people start to discuss it going, we're starting to rely on them to explain biblical concepts. We're starting to do this. There's, this can be a real problem at a certain point. And so, I mean, I, I do think there has been, and I, and I mostly see it in reform. I mean, I'm sure they're everywhere, but I'm saying I see them more in reform circles than, than a lot of other places. And I think we just need to recognize that, you know, at the time when the Roman Catholic Church adopted the use of images, it was adopting what the world liked. And so when, if the church adopts memes now or the church adopts movies, it's the same problem. Right. It doesn't need to go back and say it has stills. But we should just recognize that it's the church saying, hey, the world works a certain way, and we need to conform ourselves to the world, which means you're not being conformed to the Word of God. So as we consider how the— what happened to the church, how it, all of a sudden it brought all these people in. All of a sudden it said that that the the leaders of it had more authority and built a hierarchy, and then it, it rejected the word of God. 
we should look for those things in our churches today because those aren't ever that far from any of us. There's always this temptation to say, just give him the power. We don't want to do the work. These things are always at the door, always waiting there to embrace it. And the problem is the church has embraced a lot of it, and we've headed back to Rome. And that will destroy the church of Jesus Christ. At least the visible, the true church, will always persevere. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching. Thank you.